Good morning and happy Friday to everyone here in Northeast Texas. Today is our broadcast of North by Northeast. You can hear this program Fridays from 9 until 10 on KETR, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. In today's show, we are fortunate to have a couple of guests from the Texas A&M University Commerce Department of History. We have Dr. Andrew Baker and Dr. Malinka Cardona are here with us today to give us an update on what's going on over in the Department of History. And there actually is a great deal going on, not just on campus. We're getting off campus and out into the community, too. So, folks, welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin just with an overview of what's going on in the Department of History right now, because in addition to all of the usual uh, usual course offerings and programs, there are also some partnerships going on around the region. Yeah, so in the last few years, our department has focused a lot on public history. Uh, so public history is all about engagement with the community, Uh, engagement with uh, historical societies, museums, and getting our students really in the field, per se. Uh, So we've had partnerships with the Audie Murphy Museum uh, in Greenville. We've been working with um, the Delta County Historical Commission, Historical Society, uh, about conducting oral history interviews that they're they're doing. Uh, And also, probably our biggest projects have been uh, oral history interviews with veterans from the East Texas War and Memory Project, Uh, It's a project that wrapped up over the last two years uh, where we recorded about 250, 260 interviews with veterans. Okay, well, lots of folks are familiar with that project Mm -hmm. because it's something that has been going on for a number of years, and there hasn't been a whole lot about it in the news recently. So let's begin there by kind of giving an update on the East Texas War and Memory Project and where it stands right now. And let's kind of start at the beginning, because although it is a familiar topic for lots of folks, uh, not everyone has heard about it. Not everyone knows what it is. So what is the East Texas War and Memory Project? How did it evolve? And you say that we've kind of come to a stopping point with it now. So where does it stand? Yeah, so the War and Memory Project started uh, before I got here. So I've been here. This is my fifth year. Uh, And when I arrived, they had uh, conducted about 100, 150 interviews. So this started out of the Honors College with um, students going out into the community and sitting down with veterans. Uh, So these would be World War II veterans is mostly where they started. But we eventually hit uh, veterans from all major conflicts and in Cold War. Uh, And they sit down and essentially ask the veteran to tell the students about their experience, uh, how they got into the military, any experiences they had during, and then what it's been like to adjust to civilian life. So we record these interviews. They're, they're on video, and then also we did some audio recording. And then the students would process those. So that means uh, transcription, uh, indexing. So we have a, a written record. And then ultimately all these have been put on the Northeast Texas Digital Collections website. So anyone in the community can go on and look for these interviews, listen to them, download them, uh, bring them into the classroom, and then also share them with with family and friends. Well, that's uh, that's a pretty ambitious project. Uh, what what are some of the veteran stories that uh, stick out in your mind? Because I'm sure that over the course of the past few years, you've heard uh, almost all of them, if not almost all of them. Yeah, so we, we have a, a great variety of veterans, and I think that's, that's been the most interesting thing for me to see is, of course, the combat veterans uh, get a lot of the attention, and they have the most exciting stories, but they also have some of the most difficult stories. Uh, and to, th- to see that the number of veterans we have who are 
um, not in conflict directly, but who are in supporting roles and who whose service looks a little different from the, the combat veteran. And so seeing the variety of veteran stories um, from the difficulties of leaving leaving home and family to those who uh, we have a few who who go abroad for conflict, return, and then ultimately return to these places as missionaries, as part of nonprofits, as educators. And so you really get to see the way Northeast Texas is connected to the broader world in ways that you, you wouldn't really see just visiting the place, but the extent to which families and communities have these global connections. So uh, this project is, uh, it's, it's basically come to a stopping place now. So Yeah, so um, what we've done is we've stopped interviewing and we've realized just how many interviews we have to process and to really work with. And so one of our goals was to get these interviews in front of people, especially the youth in, in classrooms. And so getting our students' experience in turning these hour, hour and a half, sometimes two-hour interviews into more of a 10 or 15-minute product that somebody can sit down, listen to, and get a, really, a real sense of that veteran service if they don't have an hour and a half. Um, and so we've we've done a lot of work cutting them, providing some brief narration to contextualize it, and then those are on, available online as well. So where where do people find these? So the library's website, um, the Northeast Texas Digital Collections, is our archival collections online. And then the library also has something called a LibGuide, which has access to these processed files. And I think we're going to put those links online. Now a lot of a lot of the time. Uh, Sometimes university libraries, uh, you can't really, you know, it's, it's difficult to find things. You, mm-hmm. you go to the front page and you don't even know where to start. So uh, would, would somebody be able to just uh, do a Google search for Northeast Texas? What would it be? Digital archive? Digital collections. Digital collections. With the S. With, with the S, digital collections. So if you were to just do a search for Northeast Texas digital collections, you'd get there pretty quickly. Yeah, and they're organized by conflict. By conflict. Okay. So uh, so if you're interested, folks, the East Texas uh, War and Memory Project, uh, so much information is now available to the public. It's online at the Northeast Texas Digital Collections website. Just look for the East Texas War and Memory Project there. And a great resource for educators, a great resource for veterans or anyone who cares about veterans. And uh, we hope that uh, this program today will increase awareness about this resource because uh, it's not just the East Texas War Memory Project. That Northeast Texas Digital Collections website really has an amazing uh, archive. And it's not all just text. Of course, we mentioned the audio, but there's lots of great images. People love pictures, and there are some wonderful historical photos on that on that archive as yeah, well. Yeah, so there was a grant a, f- a few years before I got here where they went... Uh, county by county to major libraries and digitize a lot of materials, especially images. So if you go on that website, you'll find a lot of this local history content. So Dr. Cardona, let's talk a little bit about the public history program. What, what is, where did we get this idea for a public history program and what is it? So first, I guess we could talk about what is public history. Yes, right. Please. So we, <laughs> we define public history as anything that is history outside of the classroom. So people engage in public history all the time without realizing it. Anytime you go to a national park, uh, go to a monument in a town, visit a museum, right? You are engaging in public history. So what we are, what our program does, right? We're educating or we're training public historians in a way um, so that they can be aware of how to 
apply history outside of the classroom. That helps. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. So, what what is the uh, what what specifically what's going on at our department here at, on the campus of A and M Commerce with that? So, our program is a, a graduate certificate. Uh, so it is right now for uh, graduate students, but we do have an undergraduate class for intro to public history and I also believe oral history um, that uh, will be next semester uh, with Dr. Baker. Um, and so our our program provides an introduction overall to the various types of public history and lets our students kind of see where can they apply their historical knowledge, right, and interact, uh, I always say, either front of house or back of house. So whether they want to be in archives, we have a, a class that we do with uh, archives so they can learn how to process collections. Um, a lot of times it's digitizing collections, things like that, for people who want to work with history but maybe don't want to be um, – what I call front-facing, <laughs> right. and, and interacting at the public in a general way or teach. Um, and then we also have things like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, digital history, which we've got a digital humanities class that will be next spring or the following spring. A year from now. A year from now following fall. Um, and then we also have the students do uh, internships. So they can go out and actually work with other public historians, whether that is in an archive somewhere, whether it is a library, whether it is a um, historical home, museum, et cetera. We try to get students placed in areas so that for a full semester, they can have actual experience working in public history before they graduate. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, <laughs> that's pretty uh, that's a great opportunity for folks. So uh, we mentioned some local history partnerships. So let's first talk about uh, what's going on. Either one of y'all can feel this. Uh, talk about what's going on with the Delta County Historical Society. Yeah, so that's something that the archives and I have been working on, where they came to us wanting to do a, a history project to capture the history of their community. And so really, we've, we've helped train them. We provide some of the uh, archival resources, so the processing, the digital side, and basically give them microphones and say, go out into your community and record the history that is there. And so they're really leading that effort and we're providing the, the, the training, the context, and, and a general sense of how to proceed with this kind of project. Why Delta County? They approached us uh, at a short level. Yeah. I mean, and this is something we're really interested in the department is, is how do we get involved in the community? But one of the things about public history is this idea of shared authority. So we don't enter the public and tell them what to think. We say, what is the history that you want to celebrate? What's the history you want to talk about? And then we do help contextualize. We provide some fuller sense of, of what it all means. But it's always in conversation with the public and not us dictating to the public. When, when did this uh, general trend toward these type of public history projects, is this something new? Is this something that's been going on for a long time and we just haven't been aware of it? Yeah, public history's been around as a profession, I guess, since the 1970s, I believe, and uh, maybe even before, and there used to be a kind of a split between academic historians, public historians, you know, who, who should do history. Um, but, uh, you know, over, over time, right, we, there, we train historians. Um, there are people who actually work in museums and stuff who come out with other degrees like museum studies, things like this. So public history has really grown, I think, a lot in the last you say 15 mm -hmm. years um, with, a, you know, programs like like ours, which is fairly new um, and other other programs out there to have trained historians working 
alongside people who've worked in libraries, museums, and archives for a long time. Yeah, and I think you see a shift in from historians seeing themselves as the experts in the knowledge to the experts in the yeah. method. Mm -hmm. uh, that we know the broad history and how to contextualize, but ultimately we don't know what happened in this community the same way a community member might. And so it's our role and our students' role to engage those questions and to listen as much as we talk. Uh, so that's the trends I see. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> kind of makes you wonder why people didn't think of that before. <laughs> but, I mean, if, it, if it's been around for almost 50 years, then I guess that's that's enough momentum for it to... Uh, have uh, you know a, a, to where that's the kind of the, that's the uh, conventional wisdom in history now is to approach it that way. Well, and it, and it leads to a lot more democracy, right. which is messy and more difficult, but ultimately, I think a better product and a better process. That is what we try to preserve around these parts. <laughs> we we like democracy. We want it to exist. Speaking of democracy and the people, this is a call in program. And if you would like to join the conversation, uh, if you have any questions about what's going on at A&M Commerce, you're obviously welcome to bring those. But if you have questions about history in general, uh, I don't know how many times you're going to have a couple of historians uh, nailed to their seats, unable to escape, and, and uh, they have to answer your questions. So th this is a great uh, opportunity for folks who are interested in uh, topics related to history, uh, whether you're interested in a specific uh, historical era or episode, or if you're interested in the way we talk about history today uh, in society, then you're definitely encouraged to give us a call. We know that lots of folks are listening online and maybe they're not able to make a call at work, uh, but uh, we hope that you can maybe uh, sneak out to the uh, lobby or parking lot or whatever and make a call. 800-882-5387 is the number to call us here at KETR. That's 800-882-5387. And we're going to take a very short break right now. But coming up, uh, we'll be talking about uh, what we're doing with the Audie Murphy American Cotton Museum. Did I get that right? Okay. So. Yes. It's it's a long name for uh, a nice museum down there in Greenville. We'll be talking about that and much, much more. You're with listener-supported radio for Northeast Texas. This is 88.9 KETR in Commerce. And we're back on North by Northeast. Thank you, Waylon Jennings, for that interlude. You are with a couple of A&M Commerce history professors today. My name's Mark Haslett. I'm the host of North by Northeast, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. You can hear this program Fridays on KETR from 9 until 10 in the morning. And in the studio with us today, we have Dr. Andrew Baker and Dr. Malenka Cardona. Both of them are over in the history department at A&M Commerce. We... We are talking a little bit earlier about public history and what it is, and it's uh, a way that uh, academics and normal people, if you want to put it that way, can uh, collaborate on historical projects where the uh, people from the communities are really the ones who bring the knowledge, and then the academics are the ones who can kind of help organize and construct a narrative to make it to where that history doesn't pass away with the people who bear it and lives on. And that's a wonderful project. And a little bit closer to home, we've got uh, some collaborations going on with the uh, Audie Murphy American Cotton Museum. 
Yeah, so um, one of the first things I did when I got here was was look around at places we could have collaboration with. And that's what public history is really all about, as we talked about, collaboration. And so the, the Audie Murphy Museum is, is military history and is regional agricultural history or cotton history. And so that really hits two things that we were doing with War and Memory Project and then also um, my background as an environmental, rural, agricultural historian. Um, and so working with Susan Lanning, who's the, the head of the museum over there, we've, we've developed ways to, to bring her into the classroom. So it's just this past week she talked for a couple hours with our public history students about, about what it means to run a museum and all the things you don't think about, like how to, how to do event planning, how to work with a board of directors, how to, how to manage a budget, all these skills that our history students need to have if they want to get into real public history. So that's one side of it. And then also, as a department, we've been in, involved, engaged with a cotton conference. So this is something that's open to the community, brings in academics um, and speakers to talk about the history of cotton in Northeast Texas, but also in the broader global context. And they really get some, some big-name scholars to come in um, and talk about the history of slavery, history of global trade. Um, we had one talk about the, the cotton exchange and the big financial systems that go with cotton trading. And so that brings in, in locals and academics to really engage with this thing that's so central to the region's history, which is cotton production. So it's been a great partnership for both sides, I think. When did cotton really uh, fade from center stage around these parts? Yeah, so cotton really took off in the 1880s with the arrival of the railroad and then started phasing out in the 1960s and 70s, although you can still see cotton uh, sure. around the area. But we see um, more hay bales than cotton. We see more hay, and then a lot of other areas have shifted to soybeans, and that's all about global commodity markets and a, and a bunch of other things. So was it industrialization in India and China that led to the decline of cotton in the United States as uh, one of our major export crops? So cotton is, is still a major export crop, but it's become much more focused on a few areas. And in the United States, that's the Mississippi River Valley, uh, so near Vicksburg. And then in Texas, that's the Texas High Plains and around Lubbock, and then the Rio Grande Valley. Those are the two areas that produce most of the cotton in Texas. And Texas is still one of the top cotton producing states. Uh, but a lot of that's moved out of East Texas. So uh, they... Uh, some folks helped with, uh, did they help with an exhibition over there? Uh, so we're, we're partnered with Collin College to host this conference okay. uh, every week, every, sorry, every year in April. And the name of the conference? Uh, so it's the, the Cotton and Rural Life Conference. Okay. Uh, so Kyle Wilkinson at Collin College is my partner in that. And then Nick Nelson, who's also in our department, has been helping. They're really doing a lot over at Collin College these days. Yeah, as McKinney grows, Colin grows too. I think. Yeah, they're they're getting they're getting a lot of money, so uh, and that's great. Yeah, we're we're happy about that. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about history in general, but before we move on to that, uh, I would like to ask both of y'all what you're working on right now because people don't really. I think there's lots of misconceptions about history. Uh, we. Military history is probably one of the most popular uh, uh, genres within history. You know, when you go to half-price books in Dallas, the military history section is enormous, and then the other history section is, eh, it's, you know, kind of medium-sized. So I think that there's a perception that in history you study wars and battles and you mem memorize names and dates, 
and it goes a little bit beyond that. So uh, I'd like for you all to discuss what you're working on research-wise, and we can start with Dr. Cardona. Sure, thank you. Well, and it's funny that you bring up military history because that's not, neither of us do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I work on my, my current project is um, an expansion out of what my uh, dissertation was. So I work on a 19th century Dutch woman who traveled on the Nile in the 1850s and 60s. So it's a pretty exciting project because um, not many people know about her. Her name is um, Alexandrine Tine. She was a wealthy Dutch woman. I, I'm going to ask you to spell that. Sure. T-I-N-N-E is okay. her last name. Alexandria Tine? Alexandrine Tine. Okay. Yeah, someone most people have never heard about. Well, what'd she do? So she explored in Africa uh, on the Nile River at the height of uh, kind of British exploration and discovery on the continent. Um, she was part of the search for the source of the Nile. Um, when some big name British explorers went missing, she joins in the search. Now, this is unusual because women at the time just didn't do that. Right. Yeah. And not only was she traveling on the Nile, she was traveling with her mother and her aunt. So now we have three women unescorted, which is pretty scandalous, to be traveling uh, without gentlemen. But the fact that they were traveling through, quote unquote, darkest Africa at the same time, um, they caused a lot of uh, scandal in a way because they were traveling where ladies weren't supposed to be going. Um, but the other thing they were doing is they were sending back scientific information back to uh, London, actually, to the Royal Geographical Society. So the Royal Geographical Society, in turn, looks at all of this information these women are sending back, um, and then they start figuring out how they can use it to make claims to places in Africa. So what's kind of... Uh, they unnerved a lot of British explorers, these women. These There's diaries that I've looked at where these men are very upset that these ladies are traveling through Africa. These women are incredibly wealthy, so they can go kind of wherever they want. Right. Um, but they're doing things they at the time, quote unquote, shouldn't be doing. So it's a really exciting story because it looks at kind of this intersection of uh, class and gender and kind of how gender norms are changing in the mid mid uh, 19th century. So that's what I really look at. That's what this project is investigating, looking at the roles of women, looking at the roles of women in the Atlantic world, um, looking at exploration, discovery, mapping, cartography, these sort of things. So was their work uh sociological was it uh geographical more geographical it was uh, purely exploration and discovery so the teenage ladies uh alexandrine and her mother who was a baroness um, are actually credited with going the furthest up the nile for the first time in an actual uh mechanical boat so would that be in what is today Sudan, or is that yes, still Egypt? South Sudan. Uh, Juba, actually. Is, they got a little past Juba, which is the current capital of South Sudan. Wow, so South Sudan. Yeah. I didn't know the Nile went down that far. Yeah, yeah, the, where the Nile, yeah, the Nile splits past Khartoum and then further down. Yeah. Okay, okay, wow. Yeah, yeah so wow. I had a lot going on there and working the uh, book manuscript now. <laughs> so how, how do you engage with our current sensibility where... We collectively have come to the realization that imperialism was not a good thing. Uh, so you talk about you're using words like discovery and exploration, mm -hmm. and those are kind of loaded words. So Absolutely. How, how do you get into that topic and not 
get into some colonialist uh, presumptions. Yeah, sure. So you have to look at that. And like when I teach courses um, where we talk about these things, I always uh, ask my students, why do I put air quotes around discovery, right? Because you can't discover something where someone is already living. So I do touch on this in my work um, because there is this British, especially, were using the teenage women to further colonialist, colonial ideas. Um, and that's not what the women were a part of, because they were just traveling on their own. They weren't traveling as part of the British government or anything like that. But we see uh, England trying to, trying to use them for these purposes. And the women kind of fought back on that a little bit, because they were just doing it for science, uh, not for imperial gains. And so right. that's what we see in the historical record that these women leave, that they were purely doing it for scientific um, purposes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's that's interesting stuff. And uh, I am going, going ahead and guess that most of the folks who are listening have not heard of it. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Dr. Sure. Baker, what are you working on? So going from Africa back towards the United States, mm-hmm. uh, I work on suburban sprawl. So oh, well, that, Colin, that's a topic in, in this part of the world. <laughs> so you may, you may have heard of it. You may have noticed highways spreading out this way. And yes. Subdivisions. So a um, book I published so last year, but I'm really uh, promoting right now and, and getting around uh, doing podcasts, interviews, and that kind of stuff, is all about what suburban development looks like from the rural side. Um, so it really looks at, at counties where suburban development is looming and then really enters the county, how that development proceeds and really get at some of the local people who make a lot of money off of it or who fight it. Um, so it's about environmental history. It's about the politics of development, about land use, about reservoir construction. Um, and so I looked at a county outside Houston, so where the Woodlands, Montgomery County, and then a county outside Washington, D.C., to look at the way this process plays out, but also the way locals deal with the process and and make a lot of money in the process right for some of them but also um many of the locals feel dispossessed or feel like this is shoved them out of their home well it's definitely headed our way of course the sprawl has now basically uh, advanced to along i-30 it's advanced to the county line uh sort of where you have bucky's and neighborhoods with houses with gigantic roofs as far as the eye can see almost and then over uh, on Highway 380, uh, around uh, Farmersville and Princeton, that area is suburbanizing rapidly. So that's definitely a topic uh, relevant here. And of course, in Fannin County, a couple of new reservoirs going in, one kind of small one relatively, and one enormous one. So have you been engaged with any of those yeah, so situations? I've been, I've been following some of that, and, and it often looks very similar to what I found in the 1960s and 70s in these counties. Is there anything that you've encountered in your studies of these phenomena that are counter to people's um, presumptions or stereotypes about suburban sprawl? Well, that, the main thing I, I've discovered is that we tend to see the city as, as marching into these counties and, and suburbia as taking over. But most of what I see is, is people who own land are usually involved in the process, welcoming development, uh, and really some people are trying to manage development, whereas other people are, are really trying to bring it in for the economic gain. Uh, right. So it's it's not, I mean, going back to imperialism, it's, it's not really an imperialist yeah. situation at all. Uh, it's a situation where uh, local 
uh, landowners and developers are taking advantage of demographic trends and economic trends. And a lot of what I see, too, is by the time you see the houses arrive, most of the process has already happened. Uh, right. the, the visual side of it is the last part. It's the it's the land use. It's what goes on in the county courthouse. It's the debates in the, in the political side. So uh, for people who are involved or want to be involved, you have to pay attention to what's going on in the courthouse, not so much what you see when you drive around. Are there any success stories that Northeast Texas could emulate? Because uh, we all know what it looks like when sprawl goes without any sort of intentionality. Uh, and then you have a situation where all of a sudden where it used to be rural and pretty, all of a sudden there's like all these suburbs and it's just strip malls and there's no parks and you can't walk or bicycle anywhere. There's, you know, these huge subdivisions and some of them don't even have sidewalks. So how, how do you avoid that sort of dystopian suburb? Well, so looking at the woodlands as a, as a model planned community, I think that's one, one example of development done pretty well. Uh, I'm not going to say perfect or done right, maybe, but that involved a large company that came in and bought up a lot of land and then developed it all as one planned development. And where you see a lot of this sprawl scenarios is where it's piece by piece developed without a real plan. So it's basically having a plan. Having a plan and having citizen engagement in the plan early and throughout. Is that a problem when you have situations where people are cynical about government and they don't want to get involved because they have sort of a defeatist attitude that any type of plan is inherently a bad thing? So there's, there's a great statement that guided a lot of my research was that the federal government has all of the money, the state government has the power, and the local government tends to have the problems. Uh, and so a lot of what you see at the local level is the things that interact your life most happen at the local level, but people tend to engage most at the federal level. And that's what uh, our news cycle is about. That's where our attention is. If you think about zoning, if you think about property values, property taxes, schools, dis districts, most of the things that really shape your day-to-day -day life happen at the local level. And that's where most of the apathy is. Is that getting worse with uh, our culture of online news and the cycle of outrage and and things like that because like for example local media often uh, and i'm speaking from personal experience <laughs> don't really have the resources to do as much as they would like to do as far as shining a light on these local issues and you pick up the local paper and it's really boring there's nothing but car wrecks and school sports and that's it and there's not a lot about, uh, you know, these issues of development. So I'm, I'm teaching a signature course right now um, to 100 freshmen. And the topic of the class is all about urban planning, historical geography, and essentially where we got these things like subdivisions, shopping malls, inner uh, highways, why we have these, where these came from, and how we might rethink them. And a lot of what I find in teaching these things is when you really get into it, it's kind of boring. Yeah. It's it's just boring. Yeah, it's it's not it's not scintillating stuff. It's not yeah. anywhere near as interesting as somebody said something that was insolent and now everyone's yeah. mad. And so to sit around and have a conversation with the public about zoning. Yeah. is a difficult conversation to have not because it's 
you can't understand it, but because most people would rather not try just to understand kind of glaze it. over. Yeah. It's not very interesting. And so I think the way power works at the local level, the way these decisions are made tend to happen in that kind of legal language, mm-hmm. bureaucratic language, which is makes it politically difficult to engage those questions. Right. Well, that's, uh, that's worth, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like you got to eat your vegetables sort of thing. Uh, if, if you want to have a community, that's a good place to live. Sometimes, uh, you have to engage with, uh, things like zoning and going to city council meetings and, and stuff like that. I, before we're done today, we, we only have about 15 minutes left, but I do want to talk a little bit, not just about y'all's research topics, but also about, um, history in general and your students. And, uh, I'd like to ask both of y'all, what's your experience before we talk about history as a discipline, what, what's your experience with students, uh, coming out of the high schools, uh, around here and how, how much history have they had in high school? Do they have much of a context or are you having to kind of start from scratch with a lot of them? Um, I think it's the latter. I think a lot of them, we're in a way having to start from scratch. I think students, sometimes they, they've memorized a lot of things, right? For a test, for example. Um, but they don't, they can't put stuff in context, right? So a lot of our job, um, it, one, the, the big hurdle we have to overcome is getting them to realize that history is not boring. I always ask my students, um, and these are our, my U.S. history survey students, you know, how many of you think history is boring? Oh, the hands all go up. You know, why? Oh, it's over. It's done. Who needs it? We don't care. Uh, you know, I had it in high school. Why do I have to do this? So we, you know, we, we try to explain to them, like, here's why you should know history. Here's why, here's why in a state university, you're required to have a full year of U.S. history, right? We want you to be a more informed citizen of your country, right? A more informed citizen of the world. Um, and part of the conversation I have with my students is to get them to realize that history isn't boring, right? Tell them like they, they tell me, I should say, Oh, I don't like it. It's names, it's dates, it's wars. You know, as you said, right. The, the largest, mm-hmm. <laughs> the largest amount of books, right. We look at history channel, for example, right. And it's, and, it's the war channel. It's the war channel. If you're, if you're lucky or it's ice truckers, right. Whichever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tell my students, right. But I try to explain to students that history is about people. And I always ask them, are people boring? Generally, no. Individually, sometimes, right? But collectively, collectively, we're pretty interesting. We do a lot of crazy things throughout time. But I also want my students to make connections, right? Students always say, oh, well, history's past. It's done. Yeah, but what is past, what has been done, completely affects today and tomorrow and the future. And so to get students to realize, right, that it's not boring, it's not you know, done. Why bother? Right. That's, I think, our biggest hurdle. Um, and to get them to understand that what they learned in high school, maybe we, we can expand on that quite a bit. Right. We talk about the different layers and levels of history um, and how they can engage with it more at the college level. Yeah, for me, it's really about asking why. Right? Everything around us has historical roots it has context. And so to get students to think about not just who's responsible now, but how is this the legacies of what happened earlier? And how can we really get back to those decisions that we're stuck with now that we might be able to change if we really understand how it happened? And so development, like we talked about, looking for patterns in the past so that we can engage the present. 
a lot of this is we're in the humanities. We're, mm-hmm. we're storytellers. And so it's our job and our role to tell a convincing, meaningful story and to engage students in that process, uh, not just memorize the facts, the cold, hard stuff of history, or, or history as the place where things have cobwebs and it's musty. Right. Yeah, well, no, it's it's. I, I'm a big fan of history myself. That's part of the reason why I thought to have you all on the show. Uh, we do have the phones open. Uh, our producer is in there uh, ready to pick up the phone if need be. 800-882-5387. That's 1-800-882-KETR if you'd like to ask Dr. Malinka Cardona or Dr. Andrew Baker a question about A&M commerce history or history in general. They are right here, ready and willing to talk. 800-882-5387. That's 800-882-KETR is the number if you'd like to participate. You're listening to North by Northeast, Conversations That Matter to Northeast Texas. And we are joined by a couple of A&M commerce history profs today, Dr. Cardona, Dr. Baker. And what can folks do with a history degree besides teach? That's the inevitable question that you hear. So not that teaching is bad. We, we love teaching. We love high school teachers and elementary school teachers and college professors. We, we love all of them. But what are the things that you can do with a history degree besides uh, teach at some level? Yeah, that's a great question because even I remember when I majored initially in history, what are you going to do with that? Teach? Maybe. Probably. I think so. Um, they can do a lot, right? We talk a lot of, because of the skills that you uh, get, right? And you're studying history, you can get into research, right? You can get into law, right? Um, become a police officer, right? We ask a lot of students, like, you know, where, why would it be important to know the history of the country, right? And how can you put that together in, um, in other ways, right? If you don't want to teach, um, everything has a history, right? You could work for a big name corporation as a researcher, right? You can um, work as, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a consultant, right? For film, for radio, for um, all kinds of things like that. That's why we also look at public history, right? You can work in museums, you can work in libraries, um, you can work, you can become a park ranger, right? For a state or national park. So there's a lot of things that you can do with a history degree besides teach, yeah, I, I usually present it as a toolbox, not a set of knowledge, but it's it's skills you're developing to engage the public. It's writing skills, it's research skills, and it's on the student to some extent to figure out how do you want to use these? How are you going to tell an employer, here's why I'm a valuable person you should hire? So we push it a lot on our students to say, our job is to give you the toolbox and your job is to go start using the tools and in internships and in jobs when you're in college so that when you get out, you have that next step already planned out that the history degree is very much supporting and part of. There's, there's a lot going on with museums these days. Mm-hmm. People are using our technological advances to make them interactive, but also our ability to uh, use databases effectively have increased uh, museums' ability to present information to folks. Uh, what's y'all's favorite history museum, or do you have one? Oh, wow. I grew up near the Smithsonian, so... Well, that's that's, uh, that's really a fair. pretty good one, I've heard. <laughs> yes, you're, uh, yeah. Dr. Baker's from Northern Virginia, so... Um, and the new Udvar Hazy Center, which is out near Dulles Airport, is where all the stuff they can't fit in the Air and Space Museum goes. Okay. So that's where the Enola Gay, the Space Shuttle, all those wow. are. So that's, that's been a really interesting one to visit the last few wow. years. 
Wow. And then the art museums are beautiful. Well, of course. Of course. Dr. Kidd, do you have a favorite history museum? Do you know, uh, I'll stick with Texas. Okay. Uh, <laughs> since, since Andrew went national, I, I actually worked in Austin for a while. And so I'm a, I, I do really enjoy the Bob Bullock. Yes. Um, and for great Texas history, but also um, some global history there as well. So I love what they're doing down there. I got wow. to put some exhibits in there um, as my work as a public historian. So it's, it's a good place to be. Have either one of y'all been to the uh, World War One Museum in Kansas City? I, I don't know if I have the actual name of it I right. I have not. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's, it's uh, huge. It's absolutely enormous. There's a big hill near downtown Kansas City, and there's a World War One monument uh, at the top, and the museum is actually built into the hill. It's, it's kind of like a hobbit house, except much larger. <laughs> And uh, there's all kinds of stuff in there. It's really wonderful. So, well, I'll have to find my way back to the Smithsonian and down to the Bob Bullock History Museum in Austin. Uh, museums, one of the things that you can do with a history degree besides teach, you can also work uh, for uh, corporations, media organizations. Everybody needs, uh, a, not everybody, but there are many situations where you need a history expert or someone who's familiar with researching how to research uh, and of course, that skill set is ever changing. Uh, but getting away from the professional applications a little bit, I want to ask y'all about the value of having a society, a country where people know their history. Uh, what is the value in that? And why is that important? Uh, and why is it something that people should perhaps consider studying, even if they're not studying academically, it perhaps just self-educating? Yeah, so we, th we talk a lot about history and historical memory and, and the extent to which that's part of who we are, our identity as a people and as individuals. The past and how we understand the past is going to directly shape that. So everything from the civil rights movement or World War II to what how you interpret these things, what, what do these things say about who we are as a people is going to shape the way you engage current politics, the way you understand the proper role of government, institutions. And so a lot of what we do in, in our history survey class is try to reinterpret the past to say, here's, here's what, it, what we think it means. And here's how we understand what, what the role of government, how that's changed over the last century. Uh, here's, what a word like socialism means in historical context, or here's, here's how the political parties have changed. Because when you don't have that context, it's easy to just operate in, in the moment, in the present, and it really narrows the two-dimensional understanding of what's going on. And something that, that Andrew and I have talked about before, it, it helps create empathy, right? Because we study all kinds of people and places and events, right? And so it gets our students to interact with uh, groups and places and ideas they've maybe never interacted with before. And so it can help students or, you know, not even college students, right? Just anyone in general who studies history kind of understand their world a little bit better and understand kind of why people do the things they do sometimes um, for better or worse um, and how we, ca we can learn from the past and kind of see like interesting how things have changed, how things have worked out when we've done it one way versus another. Um, and, and, you know, what, what can we learn from seeing what's been done before? But for us students talking about, you know, things that are happening you know, in the here and now, it helps our, our students understand how did we get to this point? 
you know, why are things the way they are in whatever topic we're discussing? Because we can look at it historically and say, well, there was this, then this, then this, and now we're here. So what do we do with that information? And how, how can um, knowing what's happened historically inform us going forward? Well, I think as things change faster and faster and faster, um, this happens with technology, with the 24-hour news cycle, to have something to ground yourself in historically, and here's what happened, and here's what it means for us and for me, it helps people not be blown around so much by the by the news cycle. I think. Have you ever had an experience with uh, an individual student where uh, they had a satori about all of this stuff and they perhaps there is a little bit of resistance to the idea that any of the stuff that you find in a history text is relevant now and somehow they came around was it was it a particular uh story from history a particular project i mean what, what are some of your success stories that you've had with some students. I think for me, this a lot of the success comes in our survey classes, especially when we have freshmen, right? In the fall term, especially they come right coming right out of high school, first one of their first college classes. And again, it's it's more watching them realize that history isn't this old dead thing, right? And realizing how much of history informs everything. I like to tell them all the time, you are part of history right? What your, your family, you know, you, what you're doing, everything affects history and you are a part of that. And I think that is one of our challenges is students don't see themselves as part of the continuum. You know, uh, you know, again, like I said, I always ask the students, who loves history? Who hates history? And then I say, why? And they always, it's boring. I don't understand it. I had to take it or I have to take this. And so getting them to see, right, this isn't a chore, right? This is an important, these are important lessons. You know, yes, it's forced upon you as a as part of the core. <laughs> um, yes, I know you you want to be a, an engineer or a nurse, whatever their 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 major is going to be. And you know, I tell them, look, I may not all make uh, history majors out of you. I'm going to try, but you know, I'll convert some of you. And we do see that. We've been joined today by Dr. Malenka Cardona. Thank you, and Dr. Andrew Baker. Thank you as well. And uh, you're going to be able to find. Uh, a recording of this program online later today. Uh, we'll get it posted at ketr.org. And we've been discussing history at AM Commerce. And again, for folks interested in uh, that digital archive, that is the Northeast Texas Digital Collections. You can find it online, Northeast Texas Digital Collections. You can find the East Texas War and Memory Project and much, much more. And you've been listening to North by Northeast, stories that matter to Northeast Texas. My name's Mark Haslett. I'm your host, and uh, we'll visit with everyone next week. Thanks for tuning in.